You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hello, listeners. I am Zoe, a professional game developer, and I am here with my co-host, as always, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University. And we are two medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into TTRPGs, narratives, and other fun things. But before we jump into our topic today, we have a few cool things to mention. The first is a very quick shout out to Luke, one of our patrons. Thank you, Luke, for supporting the show and sending us some cool emails about neato things. Actually, about Mac's project that's been on the blog for a little while, which is very cool. Which I will I will have to start writing again now that I know people are actually reading it. But it's fun. Basically, what are you doing? You're like adding a room to a dungeon every day or every week. Yeah, it's a room a day, but I only update once a week at most with what I've done so far. But it's it's the Dungeon 23 challenge. We were supposed to write a 365-room dungeon over the course of 2023. And I'm doing one where each room is based off a page of the marginalia from the Luttrell Psalter. Which is so fucking cool. Like, I would not even know how to go about doing a room a day like that is so that is so much and there's like there's so much marginalia but transferring that into D stuff is a huge task it was probably inadvisable for me to try and <laughs> you're and a phd also, you're used to inadvisable i'm also very verbose so like i can't just say like oh this is a room with like a guy in it and done like it's a it's a paragraph at least every oh, of time. course which is why i'm falling behind yeah which is also the story of being a PhD. Yeah, always, always. So anyway, thank you, Luke, for supporting the show and supporting Max Project for the year. Uh, one of many projects, of course. And if you are interested in supporting the show, we do have a Patreon. As noted, there are a variety of tiers, uh, no matter what you want to choose or pick. And at the higher tiers, actually, you get super sweet merch. You also get exclusive TTRPG content that we write, sort of like what Mac is doing, except polished up a little bit. You also get bonus content. So all of that is super cool, super fun. So if you feel like supporting the show, you do get some cool stuff in return. It means a ton to us to get that support. It's a way of just keeping up with... The inflation of, you know, the hosting and podcasting and blah, 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 because costs are always rising and we like doing this stuff and it, all of it goes straight back into the podcast. But anyway, we also have a Discord. So if you would like another way to get in touch with us and check out our other wonderful audience members and hang out with them, check out our Discord. Our link for that is in the description below or our show notes. And we also have a couple other social medias. We got a Tumblr, Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So you can get a hold of us no matter what. Please do. We love hearing from you guys. So all that good stuff is in our show notes. You can always get into contact with us. And 
You can find us in person at Kalamazoo this year. Well, not me, and I'll I'll say why no, in a second. Just me. But Mac will be there at Kalamazoo. For those who don't know, it is the International Conference of Medieval Studies, ICMS, better known as Kalamazoo. It's massive. It's fun. It's crazy. It's a lot of fun. So I've been told I have yet not been able to go. Kalamazoo is the name of the town it's in for anyone who isn't from the Midwest and thinks that we just gave it a a goofy name for no reason. But anyway, Mac will be there. So if you are there, come say hi. I, unfortunately, (laughs) will not be there because Pentiment has been up for several awards. We've currently, so far, won Best Narrative at GDC, the Game Dev Conference. We're currently up for a BAFTA. I think by the time this airs, the results of that will be out. And we are up for, holy shit, you guys, a Nebula Award, which is f***ing crazy. Right? Funny story, I actually sent that email straight to the head of IT because I thought it was a phishing attempt. I was like, there's no, there's no way, there's no way that I, that I'm being nominated for a Nebula. But Pentiment has. So I will be attending the Nebulas. So if you happen to be at the Nebulas for some reason, come say hi to me there, which would be dope. I'd love to hang out and say hi. Anyway, point is, they're the same weekend. So I had to choose between Kalamazoo and the nebulas and since it's probably a a once in a lifetime thing i'll be at the nebulas but hopefully i'll be at kalamazoo next year that is all a very long-winded way of saying please get in touch with us we like to hear from you (laughs) (laughs) now i still haven't played pentiment because i don't have equipment that can run it and i'm too poor to buy you're a hermit we know this Is it, in fact, a science fiction or fantasy game, or did it slide through because it's kind of a medieval vibe and that's good enough? I mean, it certainly has fantasy elements in terms of, like, hallucinogenic happenings, also spiritual happenings. It's also, I mean, it's a historical game that is set from the perspective of individuals who are Christian, are Catholic, etc, etc. So there is a supernatural element to that in that these individuals in this town go through their lives and see supernatural happenings. So you could say it's sort of magical realism. That sounds like it qualifies. You know, there there are some fantasy elements. We do include like the saints and, and miracles and supernatural things going on. So take that as you will. It's it kind of fits in that weird middle ground zone. Yeah. I've been wondering that ever since you mentioned it was up for a nebula. I was like, I thought it was historical fiction, not fantasy. Yeah, you know, go, I mean, go figure. There's also a bunch of, there's like a D&D, there's a vampire masquerade. Elden Ring, of all things, is up for a nebula, which is wild to me, because in as far as I know, there is no lore in that game at all. But I will leave, you know, I'll take that one lightly salted, thanks. But fun fact, if if I do, if if Pentiment does get the Nebula, it means that I specifically beat out George R. R. Martin for a Nebula, which would be the greatest thing I would ever, ever put on my resume ever. That is amazing. What is he <laughs> nominated for? He hasn't published anything. Elden Ring. In- oh, he's on Elden Ring. Okay. He's on Elden Ring. I don't actually know how involved he was. There's a lot of rumors about, like, was he that involved or not that involved? I can't speak to any of that. But it's interesting, nonetheless, and it would be really funny. Uh, <laughs> but we're both nominees this year, so that's crazy. Anyway. <laughs> Why is he working on a video game? He has books to write. He does have books to write. 
Yeah, I also happen to know that Brandon Sanderson was really salty about not being picked to do lore for Elden Ring and that Georgia R. R. Martin was picked instead. Fun fact of the day there. Hmm. Writer squabbles. Oh, so there is lore. I mean, there's there's lore to the background of these two writers being picked for the game. But anyway, yeah, we'll see that how that turns out, I guess, by the time this airs or close to. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But anyway... Yeah, we we have a sort of a holiday episode, not quite yeah. a holiday episode. How would you characterize this, Mac? This is this is your idea. You came to me with this, and I am all for it. So I will let you take it from here. Well, today we're talking about the Peasants' Revolt, and I did think it would be appropriate to put this episode around May Day, which is also International Workers' Day. But it's gonna be a multi-part episode. Like I wrote up notes and a script and. According to the the calculator I found that like it's a it's a document to speech time estimating thing. I'm not worried. It's that like well. double usually. It takes a while. Yeah, but the point is going by the length of my script, the only way it is possible for this to be one episode is if I start reading directly from the script now and ignore every time Zoe talks. And oh, that's no. not our format, <laughs> so this is gonna be multiple <laughs> episodes. There we go. Okay, we can make it multiple episodes. Why not? Yeah, I'm expecting this to be like two or three episodes because we're going to stop and talk about stuff. Like, that's the whole point of this. For sure. If you didn't want that, you could read a book. True. Hopefully this is more fun. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the difference between us and an audiobook. But that does kind of screw up the whole holiday episode thing because this is going to be more of a mini series. Hey, we're kicking it off on May Day, so that's fine. Close to May Day. It's going to come out like... At the end of April. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to hype you up here, Mac. Sorry. Uh, Mayday! Holiday! I, yes! Workers' Revolt! Woo! All right, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, since it's a miniseries, that's why I thought it might be worth swapping out our normal music for a special music. So that instrumental version of Solidarity Forever you heard under the intro, uh, credit goes to my dad, the Elder McGregor, who volunteered to create it when I mentioned I was having trouble finding a version without the vocals. So I wanted to make sure credit was given. Thank you, Daddy McGregor. (laughs) I have no idea how he feels about being called that. I'm going to stick with it. (laughs) I just wanted to watch you suffer. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Oh, and speaking of music, I wrote all of my notes for this episode while listening to Galacticracken's song Storm the Castle on loop. Highly recommended. There you go. All right. You ready to start? Yes, let's jump into it. So, there were, of course, many peasant revolts in European history, but in the English-speaking world at least, the one that is generally referred to as the Peasants' Revolt is the English Rising of 1381. There's a lot of stuff going on there, so I'm necessarily leaving a lot out. Oh, I will say, for those who are interested in Pentiment, Pentiment is also set during a Peasants' Revolt in early Reformation Germany. So if you are interested in other medieval early modern depictions of workers' rights movements, check out Pentiment. Yeah, I think I actually saw reference to that revolt in one of my sources. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, continue. The major sources I've referenced in preparing this episode are Rodney Hilton's book Bondmen Made Free, which covers the cultural context and also talks about other peasants' revolts, I think including the one in Germany Zoe just mentioned. 
And also R.B. Dobson's The Peasant's Revolt of 1381, which does not have a creative title, but does collect and comment on the primary sources. So all of the quotations that I'm going to read in this episode are from Dobson, or from the sources that Dobson has collected. Nice. Citations are in the show notes. Yes. And on the blog. Now, these books are both decades old at this point, but they're well-written and they're easy to find affordable used copies of, so I do recommend checking them out if you want to learn more. I'm only quoting directly from the primary sources. That's for time reasons. We're not going to go into, like, the scholarship at all, but there's a lot out there. What we're going to do is talk a little bit about the background and causes of this specific revolt, and then cover the events of the most famous part of that revolt, specifically the part that happened in London. However... You should understand that the events in London were just one part of a larger movement which took place in various places throughout England over the course of the summer of 1381. For American listeners, think of the summer of 2020 as an analog. It's one big movement, but it's very decentralized and grassroots, and it's spread out over the whole country for months. And covering it properly would be a whole podcast on its own, so we have to focus in on one part. Yes, very specific things. Also, reminder here, because I think this is worth saying, especially because like, I don't specialize in this stuff. And when I think like, workers rights, I think of industrial revolution stuff. I don't think of the Middle Ages. I just think of feudalism, like the dreaded F word in the Middle Ages. So please keep that in mind. Like we are talking pre industrial revolution at this point, And these you know, issues have basically always been around, is my point here. Yeah, their demands are different because the system is different, but I think you'll find there's a lot of resonance. Yeah. Oh, incidentally, before we get started, if any of you listening know a lot about the Peasants' Revolt and think we're getting stuff wrong or leaving out interesting bits or want us to talk about the other parts of the movement, this is an open invitation to come on the podcast and tell us about it. I would love to have yeah. someone on here that knows more than I do and who can educate us. Yeah, or at least on the Discord, too. Like, you yeah. don't have to be an expert on this stuff. Just stick your two cents in. Yeah, if you just want to, like, correct us and don't want to do a whole thing, yeah, you can just come on the Discord and tell us stuff. But yeah. if you do want to make a whole thing, like, we'll, we'll do a follow-up episode. We will gladly have you on. Yeah. All right. So... I'm now starting the section of my script that is labeled Causes. One thing that's regularly cited as a cause of the Peasants' Revolt is the Black Death. The plague killed a huge portion of the English populace in the mid-14th century. Zoe, why are you face-palming? Because we already, like, you said 2020 is like a good analog, and immediately it was just like, oh. Oh yeah, pandemic. I understand now. Yeah, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm, okay, I just didn't expect it to be that on the nose. I apologize for interrupting immediately. Go on. No, you're supposed to interrupt. That's why you're here. That's that's (laughs) why I'm not just talking to a microphone alone. That's fair. Okay, so pandemic, if you will. Yeah, slightly different in that the plague kills a huge portion of the English populace some 30 years before the actual revolt, but it sets up the circumstances that led there. I've got a quotation from the Chronicon Henrici Knighton, which is a source we'll come back to, so I should probably explain what it is. Knighton was a canon at Leicester Abbey who wrote a history of England. The latter part of that history, the 14th century part, is interesting to historians because it's covering events during Knighton's own lifetime. 
So it's a useful contemporary account. Yeah, all of the primary sources I'm quoting are basically some guy is writing a history and this is the part of the history that he was actually alive for. That's really cool. Anyway, here's an excerpt from Knighton's record of the year 1348 when the plague hit England. <clears throat> Sheep and oxen strayed at large through the fields and among the crops, and there were none to drive them off or herd them. But for lack of keepers, they perished in remote byways and hedges in inestimable numbers throughout all districts, because there was such a great scarcity of servants that no one knew what he ought to do. For there was no recollection of so great and terrible or mortality since the time of Vortigern, king of the Britons, in whose day, as Bede testifies in his book concerning the deeds of the English, the living did not suffice to bury the dead. In the following autumn, a reaper was not to be had for less than eight pence with his food, a mower for less than twelve pence with food. Therefore many crops rotted in the fields for lack of men to gather them. So here he's saying, like, wages were so high that people couldn't afford to pay them. What we've got here is basically a supply and demand issue. There's a severe labor shortage. And so the laborers are asking for higher wages. Right. Which, let's be real, the lords can probably pay. They live in f***ing castles. Yeah. But they don't want to. However, right. And if they can hire enough people to get their cut of what they need to survive they can afford to let things rot. Yeah. So we've got this problem, labor shortage. And we should note, by the way, that while from our perspective, anything measured in pence is a hilariously small amount of money, that was not so in the 14th century. That same account mentions that the price of livestock fell when the population did, for obvious reasons, and lists some of these new prices. A sheep oh could apparently be bought for three pence. And yes, this is in context being used as a shockingly low price, but it gives you the idea of the value of money. Mm -hmm. I would use a figure for livestock prices in the 1380s, but I couldn't find one. It's really, really hard to find those numbers. Yeah. But the point is, when it's saying, like, you can't hire a mower for your harvest for less than 12 pence, like, yes, 12 pence sounds tiny, but that's also three sheep. Yeah, that's crazy. Or four sheep, actually. Wow. But that... That is, like, because livestock are now cheaper and labor is more expensive. Mm -hmm. Also, you have to keep in mind that people dealt in actual cash a lot less. In a peasant community, a lot of business would be done in a system of IOUs, favors, and barter. Actual coins did not necessarily change hands. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this went on even through the Renaissance. Uh, I believe it was Isabella de Est did a great deal of her trade and purchasing on like lavish amounts of, of jewelry and goods and things like that. Anyway, point is she would use her assets, which is to say like literally her dress as collateral for different things, like for credit. Mm -hmm. It didn't have to be coin, which is something that we are very much unfamiliar with. Which we shouldn't be, because if you think about it, like... The system they would be using is just the analog version of our digital banking system, where there's right. no money being handed across. People are just keeping track of how much who owes who else. And every so often, mm -hmm. like, you settle one of those debts by giving them goods. 
Or like think about like the billionaires, the millionaires and billionaires who are who own property and assets and things like that. They can basically like put that up as collateral and that's part of their net worth. Yeah, yeah, that too. Although we are talking in in th- in this case about peasants, so they don't have any collateral. Not yeah. Right, right. But the idea that your property can be used as value. Yeah. Or as money. Yeah. For peasant communities, the system they're working with is more like all right, say you're an alewife and you're selling your ale in the local tavern. And there is a set price for ale. Ale costs about uh, a penny a gallon. But you never actually collect those pennies unless you're selling to travelers or outsiders. And the people who just live in town with you come by to get your ale. You just start a tab. You keep track of how much they owe you. And then eventually, like, you'll, you'll go up to one of them when you need something and go like, hey, you owe me such and such amount for ale. I know you just brought in your grain harvest. I need grain. Why don't you give me such and such amount worth of grain? And that'll clear your tap. Or eggs. Yeah. Or whatever. Like, when we, when we say barter, people usually picture a scenario where it's like, I will give you an egg for a glass of ale. And like, <laughs> that's not really the situation. It's much larger sums, typically. Yeah, it's, it's a system of debt. Everyone's keeping track of how much money quotation mark money everyone owes everyone else and occasionally those debts get paid off but almost never in actual cash the money itself is a fiction i've recommended david graber's book debt before and i'll do it again because that gives a pretty interesting overview of that kind of system great author great author yes love his work I'm bringing this all up because we're going to be mentioning money on a couple more occasions in this episode, and I want to make sure people understand that a penny actually has real value at the time. (laughs) And we're not talking about piddly little amounts from a peasant point of view. Right. Anyway, the landowners did not appreciate having to pay higher wages, and the crown decided to step in. Edward III, King Edward III, put out a royal ordinance, freezing wages at pre-plague levels, basically immediately. This ordinance is passed in 1349, the year after that scene I just described. This already makes me really angry. Right? Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. Now, this didn't seem to take. So in 1351, three years after the plague, Parliament passes the Statute of Laborers, from which I will now quote. Against the malice of servants who were idle and unwilling to serve after the pestilence. Because nobody wants to work anymore. I paused exactly because I knew that you were going to say that. Yeah, it's the same Mm -hmm. thing. It's always the same Mm -hmm. thing. Unwilling to serve after the pestilence without taking outrageous wages, it was recently ordained by our lord the king with the assent of the prelates, nobles, and others of his council. Yeah, the prelates and nobles. Yeah. These guys! Such servants, both men and women, should be obliged to serve in return for the salaries and wages which were customary during the 20th year of the present king's reign, or five or six years previously, so directly before the plague. And this was a very common way of keeping time, was to do it in regnal year as well, so it sounds weird to us, it's very normal to them. It was also ordained that such servants who refused to serve in this way should be punished by imprisonment, as is more fully stated in said ordinance. Accordingly, commissions were made out to various people in every county to investigate and punish all those who offended against the ordinance. 
Oh my gosh. But now our Lord King has been informed in this present parliament by the petition of the commons that when they say the commons, by the way, they mean like the landowners. Like right. they don't actually mean like common commons. They, they mean like. Yes. People in parliament who aren't royal. Yeah. That such servants completely disregard the said ordinance in the interests of their own ease and greed, and that they withhold their service to great men and others unless they have liveries and wages twice or three times as great as those they used to take in the said twentieth year of Edward III or earlier, to the serious damage of the great men and the impoverishment oh, of all members oh, the of the poor said billionaires. Fucking fuck. Oh my gosh. This makes me so mad. I know. And like, on one hand, like you can really see like the resonance with modern times. But yeah, you can also see the incredible ridiculousness of this because what's basically being passed in this law is there is no minimum wage, but now there's a maximum, maximum wage. wage, but it only applies to hourly workers, not to not to the rich. Like not literally hourly. I don't think peasants were paid hourly. It's an analogy. Right. Like, it, it's like if wow. Congress were to say, like, okay, you can't pay more than $10 an hour, but salaried workers can still get whatever. Oh, my gosh. So you can see that how would people would be upset. That destroy an economy. Yeah. That would absolutely destroy an economy. So the statute lists the wages that Parliament feels are appropriate and threatens punishment for anyone who asks for more. All right. Okay, and we're we're remembering here that what earlier was 12, 13 pence? Mm-hmm. Okay. We're talking like you can hire someone for your harvest for, yeah, like 12 pence. Okay. Plus food. You have to feed them while they're working on your land, but... Yeah. Hey, they get paid lunch. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, these amounts are not small to peasants, but they kind of are to the lords. Like, right. we're, it's right. going to come up later that there, there's a guy we'll talk about later who was getting a stipend of four pence a day. Correction, 12 pence. So he could survive while in prison because he was rich. And so they're like, well, you know, white oh collar gosh. prison, you get, you get four pence a day to live on. And like, just keep that figure in mind, too, when we when we keep going. All right, so despite a lot of effort and additional legal measures, this still didn't work. People kept asking for more money, and mm -hmm. the fight keeps going on. Right. And of course, because at, at a certain point, if your entire workforce says, no, we're not going to accept such low wages, we're going to go to the generous lords who are going to give us more, then what else is there to do? You have to. Right. Although the... They are basically empowered to call in uh, government strike breakers, so. Right. So this goes on for 25 years. In oh 1376, we're now in 1376. That's an entire career. Yeah. Like, that's a lifetime of work. Oh, this makes me so mad. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. In 1376, a petition was presented in Parliament complaining that that statute we just read from wasn't doing enough. Sure. All right. <laughs> now, the Parliament of Great. 1376 is actually known for presenting a number of complaints to the crown and generally being reform-minded, but apparently that did not trickle down to the peasantry. Well, of course not. So this is from that petition. 
To the Lord our King and his wise Parliament, the Commons show and request that although various ordinances and statutes have been made in several Parliaments to publish labourers, artificers, and other servants, yet these have continued subtly and by great malice aforethought to escape the penalty of the said ordinances and statutes. As soon as their masters accuse them of bad service or wish to pay them for their labour according to the form of the statutes, they take flight and suddenly leave their employment and district, going from county to county, hundred to hundred, and ville to ville, in places strange and unknown to their masters. Well, hey, guess what? It's an <laughs> at-will country, quad. Well, it's really not, is the problem. Ugh, okay. Like, they are legally bound to the land, so they're not supposed to be able to just work for someone else. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true for this era. I hate this. Okay, all right. Okay. So the said masters do not know where to find them to have remedy or suit against them by virtue of the said statutes. If such vagrant servants be outlawed at the suit of any party, the suitor receives no profit, and the fugitives no penalty or punishment because they cannot be found, and never consider returning to the district where they had served previously. Not our prophet. Oh, no. <laughs> Above all, and a greater mischief, is the receiving of such vagrant laborers and servants when they have fled from their master's service, for they are taken into service immediately in new places at such dear wages that example and encouragement is afforded to all servants to depart into fresh places and go from master to master as soon as they are displeased about any matter. I... Like, I get, I get that this is against the law, but, like, what happens when the law is unjust? Like, okay. Alright. <laughs> mm. For fear of such flights, the commons now dare not challenge or offend their servants, but give them whatever they wish to ask, in spite of the statutes and ordinances to the contrary, and this chiefly through fear that they will be received elsewhere, as is said above. But if all such fugitive servants were taken throughout the kingdom when they came to offer their services, and then placed in the stocks or sent to the nearest jail, to stay there until they confessed where they came from and from whose service and made surety to return to their old service, and if it were known in all areas that such vagrants were to be arrested and imprisoned in this way and not received as they now are into service, they would have no desire to flee from their districts as they do. To the great oh. impoverishment, destruction, and ruin of the commons, if remedy is not applied as quickly as possible. Oh, they they oh they wouldn't want to to run away because they're they're fucking terrified of jail time. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you have to remember that in this in this legal system, quitting your job is illegal. Yeah, you have to go through your contract essentially. Yeah, you have to finish it. Which, like, I get. I totally understand. But like. There's no protections for workers if your conditions are bad. I, uh, okay. And for some of these guys, like, there's not even a contract. They live on their lord's land. They belong to that land. Yeah, no, literally. Like, literally. end of. But that varies. There's, there's a lot of different arrangements for different peasants in different, like, areas. But the point is, like, it's illegal for them to quit. And these guys are upset because they're quitting anyway and then just becoming fugitives. Yeah. And so they're like, well, we need to crack down on this. They're literally their insured workforce is disappearing, which I understand is a very bad thing. And and think about this from like, and I hate the phrase that I'm about to use here. Think about it from a mom and pop landlord perspective. Like, 
a mom and pop landowner perspective. They're like, they can, they can barely make rent because they're trying to pay the taxes to the guy above them, but their peasants keep running away and they're supposed to have like an insured workforce here, blah, blah, blah. It makes sense that these people are upset. But when you, when you start placing it in the context of these are people's lives who are being treated poorly, who can do better elsewhere, but it's illegal for them to leave. How can you justify that? Well, God ordained that this is how oh society works. <laughs> ah! Yeah, I was going to ask you, actually, like this, this, when we talk about when the, sorry, words, when the text is talking about these great men, quote unquote, this is during the time of divine right. Yeah. And we are talking about the nobility. Right. So there is an inherent understanding here that those individuals who are in positions of power have been ordained by God as better people to be in those positions of power. Essentially. Yeah. And so how dare the peasantry stand against those whom God hath ordained, which is an attitude I've seen throughout a lot of certain communities even today. Yeah, I think I've heard that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, so it's MAGA. I'm talking about MAGA. <laughs> to put a point on it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry i don't like i this is, this is an inherently political topic like i've heard the rhetoric of like god has chosen donald trump to be president you know the election was stolen how dare these people you know put up against that blah 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 therefore we need to ensure that the divine order is sanctioned and this attitude can be applied to any political group any i mean any ethnic group any whatever like you can apply this wherever you want. This is just where I'm seeing it currently in our current political environment. And we also are seeing it by the by the nobility here. There is definitely still a lot of like, it's not often expressed in the same terms, but there's definitely a lot of like, divine right type of rhetoric yeah. on the right. Or for instance, how many times have you heard like on Twitter or whatever, some Musk followers say like, oh, he's, d he's just doing it better than you. He worked harder than you. Therefore, he deserves X, Y, and Z. That's actually exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah. Right, right. And so we still have those ideas, even if they're not couched in religious sentiment. Although frequently they are because the prosperity gospel is also popular in America. Very true. Wherein it's it's believed that if you're rich, it's because God likes you. God, yeah, it's that the most toxic ugh, kind of doctrine. I don't even want to call it doctrine, but anyway. But yeah, so again, resonance with modern times. <laughs> but back to 1376, things aren't going great. The landowners don't like the shift in the labor market and are trying to legislate wages back down, whereas many of the peasants were willing to just pack up and leave if they could get paid more somewhere else, even if it meant becoming a fugitive from justice. And in turn, the landowners were demanding harsher punishments for peasants who wouldn't stick around and be repressed. I don't think anyone was setting up anarcho-syndicalist communes at this point, but that was probably just because <laughs> they hadn't thought of it yet. Yeah. There were communes of a sort on the continent, but the, the ideology that we think of when we think of communes wasn't really current in medieval Europe. Right. Takes a couple more, you know, decades, centuries for ideas to arrive. Meanwhile, King Edward, who was in his 60s at the time, is in ill health. And his son, John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, was basically running the place. What a name. I know, it sounds really cool, but it's actually just, he's, 
He's just a guy. I don't know if he owns land in or was born in, but Gaunt is just Middle English for Ghent. Like the city yeah. in Europe. Future Mac here. I checked. He's called that because he was born in Ghent, which I may be saying wrong. But I'm not sure Gaunt is any closer anyway. For anyone not up on their European geography, Ghent is a city in Flanders, which is currently part of modern-day Belgium. It makes sense. I just, it's still a cool name. Yeah, it sounds cool. Side note, John of Gaunt is the king's son, but not the king's heir. John's brother Edward, a.k.a. the Black Prince, was the heir. Oh, this guy. But he had just died of dysentery, like right after that bit we just read. Oh, shit. So there's a lot of upheaval going on. Well, no, it actually, there's actually a smooth transition of power because Prince Edward had a son, and that son is therefore the lawful heir. Ah, uh, okay. So we, we've got the John of Ghent is the, the uncle scenario. Yeah, exactly. To the, to the new king. Okay. This also, coincidentally, is where the evil uncle trope comes from, is through succession struggles. I actually mentioned this later, but I'll go ahead and drop it now. Everyone immediately assumes that that's what's going on. John of Gaunt is cast as the evil scheming uncle in everyone's mind pretty much at once. Because it sounds like it would be perfect. It would fit the narrative so well for him to be like scheming to take his nephew's crown. Yep. There's no evidence he had any interest in doing that. He never tries. He's probably pretty old at this point, too. He's like in his 30s or 40s. Like he's he's fine. He could oh, be that, okay, okay. Because he's the Black Prince's brother, so he's yeah. not in his 60s. Okay, I got the t- I got the family tree. No, the, the Black Prince's father is the one who's in his 60s. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, John of Gaunt could, but he doesn't. He does try to become King of Castile at one point, but that's separate. It's because his wife was in line for that throne. Ah, uh, that makes sense. And fun fact, was it? I can't remember. The Spanish queens could not rule in their own right. Their husbands had to rule. That sounds right. Whereas the Habsburg queens could rule in their own right. I'll take your word for that. I haven't checked into the the succession rules for various European countries. I'm pretty sure that's correct. Because it changes depending on, like what country you're in and what the tradition is. Like, some some queens could be queen, and some queens could be, like, queen but not the ruler sort Mm -hmm. of vibe. Anyway, so while all this is going on, the crown has another problem. The Hundred Years' War. Oh, yes, of course. How could I have forgotten? There had been a lull for almost a decade, but as of 1369, so several years ago by this point, the fight was back on. And the past several years of war had depleted the English treasury. Oh, well, shit, we can't, we can't go this far without a war. John of Gaunt has a solution. In 1377, the year after that, that thing we just read, and we're about to hear what it is from the Historia Anglicana. All right. This is another source we're going to come back to a few times. So in brief, this is the work of another monastic chronicler, Thomas Walsingham of St. Albans Abbey. So I'm just going to be referring to this source as Walsingham from now on. Okay. There's some doubt as to whether he wrote the whole thing or if it was passed off to others, but during the period we're covering, it's definitely Walsingham writing about stuff that's happening during his lifetime. So here's how he describes John of Gaunt's plan to refill the treasury. Oh no. About the Feast of the Purification, that's February 2nd, a parliament met in London assembled by the Duke of Lancaster, who was acting as the king's deputy at the time the latter was hopelessly ill. In this parliament, a subsidy was demanded on behalf of the king from the clergy and the lay people, 
a hitherto unheard of tax was granted to him, namely that he should take a groat, or fourpence, from each layperson of either sex older than fourteen years, except for notorious paupers who begged publicly. But women can't earn. Yep, they still have to pay. Holy s***. Alright. Future Mac here. Felt I should probably clarify. Women could earn money spinning or brewing ale or something, and some single women did manage to earn a living that way, which I believe is where we get the term spinster. But it wasn't always a highly profitable business. Married women who brewed ale on the side or something were usually not the household's main breadwinners and often did not have control of the finances. Suffice to say, it is still somewhat unfair to impose an equal amount of tax on men and women, given the discrepancy in how much they were able to earn at the time. Wow. All right. Okay. Everyone. Great. Okay. Fun. The reason that this is, quote, hitherto unheard of, unquote, is that before now, taxes had been on property. You may remember that in no. Ale Saga, Athelstan's peace offer to Olaf was a cash payment of a shilling per plow. That's basically how taxes are usually structured. You pay based on what property you own. And this is the first time in English history where it was just a straight poll tax and everyone had to pay no matter what they did or did not own. Oh my gosh. The only exceptions among lay people you may have noticed are, quote, notorious paupers, which is people who are flat broke and everyone knows they're flat broke because they're out begging in the street and you, you have to right. get testimony for this, basically. And among the clergy, there's a similar rule where all of the clergy have to pay unless they're mendicant friars, because they're also begging on the street. Poor. Right. Okay. Okay. Which makes sense because quite a lot of the, for instance, Benedictine houses are very, very wealthy at this time. Yeah. Anyway, a few months after that was passed, Edward III died, and the traditional sword was distributed by the official strange woman in a pond. Yes, of course. I'm going to quote from a contemporary source. This is the Historia Vitae et Regni Ricardi Secundi, if you want to look it up, but we're not using it again, so I'm not going to go into detail about it. But, quote, Richard of Bordeaux, a boy not fully eleven years of age, son of Edward, Prince of Wales, himself the firstborn of Edward, King of England, was solemnly crowned king by Simon, Archbishop of Canterbury, at Westminster on 15 July 1377. In this year, at about the feast of the birth of John the Baptist, which is June 24th, there was a complete collapse of peace negotiations, for the French refused to keep the peace unless an agreement highly favorable to themselves could be reached. The text goes on to describe a number of military actions by the French, including raiding and invading England itself, as well as one attack by the Scots, because while England is distracted, you might as well. Yes, yes, of course. So, England is at war and doing poorly. The king is ten years old. John of Gaunt is still kind of running things. Like, he's not officially the regent. There's, like, a council, but he's kind of running things. And he's yeah. widely disliked. Because he introduced this tax. Yeah. And also In because, part. as I mentioned earlier, he is exactly positioned to be the fairy tale evil uncle. And everyone thinks that's what's happening. Right. Of course. Okay. Side note, John of Gaunt's biggest claim to fame today is that he acted as patron to a certain obscure poet called Geoffrey Chaucer. And Chaucer was allowed to write all the shit he wrote? Damn. 
Chaucer's stuff is actually pretty pro-nobility. Yeah, I guess that is true. Yeah, when you start reading, yeah. Most of the people he goes after are clergy. Yeah, okay, that's fair. About a decade before these events we're talking about now, Chaucer wrote The Book of the Duchess, which is generally thought to be about the romance between John of Gaunt and his first wife, Blanche of Lancaster, who had recently passed at the time. The book was like a tribute to her. That's kind of sweet. Yeah. The Book of the Duchess is also a very, a very good book. Like, it, it is a genuinely sweet story. Oh, okay. I'm here for that. That's kind of cute. Yeah. Fifteen years after the revolt, John of Gaunt actually marries into Chaucer's family, and apparently the two were really close friends. But that's just an interesting side note. What you need to know for this story is that John is publicly hated. Makes sense. In 1379, out of a desperate need to raise money for the war effort, Richard's government enforces a second poll tax, which the author of the Anonymal Chronicle, that's another monastic chronicle we'll be coming back to. This one is also contemporary and written at St. Mary's Abbey in York. But as you probably guessed from the name, we don't know the author. Yeah. Anyway, it describes the second poll tax as, quote, A subsidy so wonderful that no one had ever seen or heard of the like. This is wonderful being used in a neutral sense. Like, yeah. it's, it's extremely Full unusual. Wonder, it provokes wonder. Strange. Yeah. yeah. It's the same general idea, but the gradations are much more complex. There are four pages in Dobson enumerating how much each person from Duke all the way down to peasant has to pay. It does not take any burden off of the peasants. The peasants are still paying a groat apiece. It's just that everyone else is now paying more depending on their rank. Right. Okay. I can't imagine this was popular with the nobility either. They have money to burn. Fair, but like from like a money grubbing standpoint, I can't, I still can't imagine that they were very in favor of this. Well, it is to fund the war effort. And they're all like oh, the nobles like, are the yeah. ones fighting the war. Like they probably... Yeah. A lot of them they are probably on out little... on the front lines, and they really want the Crown to be able to hire more soldiers to keep them from getting shot. Yeah, I forgot about that. All right, all right. There's so many moving pieces. By the next year, though, the Crown had blown through all of that money and more. Here's an excerpt from a message sent to Parliament in November of 1380. And let it be known that nothing has actually been received from the subsidy of wools because of the present riot in Flanders. Moreover, the wages of the soldiers of the Calais March of Brest and Cherbourg are more than a quarter and a half of a year in arrears, for which reason the castles and fortresses of the king are in great danger, as the said soldiers are on the point of leaving because of the arrears. Let it be well known that neither our Lord King nor any Christian King can endure such burdens without the aid of his commons. Therefore consider the outrageous indebtedness of the King, and how, as is said above, his jewels are on the point of being lost. And I'm, I'm cutting it off there. But he, he'd hocked them. The crown jewels were in hock. Oh, wow. The rest goes on to say basically that there are lots of military expenses and they need more money. Yes, that's the vibe I'm getting. After some back and forth about what a reasonable amount would be, Parliament imposes a third poll tax. Remember that this was considered an extremely unusual measure. This is now three times in four years. <sighs> and the new one is three groats per peasant rather than just one. These people don't have any more money. <laughs> no. Ah, okay. All right. 
Now, as you may have gathered by the fact that this is November of 1380, and the revolt happens in 1381, we're now moving on from the causes section to the events section. (laughs) I'd say so, yeah. So, as Zoe alluded to, from the point of view of the crown, there's a problem with these poll taxes, and that is diminishing returns. For some reason, each tax seems to bring in less money than the previous one. Yeah, because more of these people are paupers now. No, nonsense. We know that the peasantry is a bottomless reservoir of cash money, so such a thing could only be explained by crime. Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) (laughs) That's gotta be it. And thus, as I quote from Knighton, Therefore, a certain John Legg with three colleagues asked the king to give him a commission to investigate the collectors of this tax in Kent, Norfolk, and other parts of the country. They contracted to give the Lord King a large sum of money for his assent, and most unfortunately for the King, his council agreed. He's buying the debt, basically. Like, in modern terms, he's come to the King and said, I know that there is uncollected debt out there. I will pay you a lump sum if you let me collect that debt and keep it for myself. Okay. And the King agrees. One of these commissioners came to a certain village to investigate the said tax, and called together the men and women. He then, horrible to relate, shamelessly lifted the young girls to test whether they had enjoyed intercourse with men. (gasps) What? What does that mean? What? Reading between the lines, I think the point he's trying to make is, I am checking to see if these women are virgins. If they are not, then they're adults and they owe tax. It's about age, though. Right, but there are no birth certificates. So someone would say, like, no, my daughter is 12. Uh, and he'd be like, you're lying, she's 16. Cool, so he's going to stick his fingers in to check to see whether she has a hymen? Is that his plan? Well, it doesn't specify, it just says lifted. Disgusting. Oh, it could it could be to see, like, do they have their period? If so, they're women. That would be, like, another yeah. checkpoint. Like... It's invasive, whatever it is. Either way, it's disgusting. So in this way, he compelled the friends and parents of these girls to pay the tax for them, as many would rather pay for their daughters than see them touched in such a disgraceful way. Yeah, no s***. These and similar actions by the said inquisitors much provoked the people. And when the commons of Kent and the neighboring areas suffered such evils and the imposition of new and almost unbearable burdens, which appeared to be endless and without remedy, they refused to bear such injuries any longer. They conferred together as to what remedial action or assistance could be found. And after each man had pondered on these problems, but no one had dared to make the first move for fear that he would suffer irrevocable harm. That makes sense. Like, who's going to make the first move? Who's going to take the first shot? Right, yeah. That's terrifying. At last, a certain Thomas Baker of Fobbing, so-called because of his trade. Fobbing? What, what is Fobbing? Fobbing's the village. Baker is his trade. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> that makes more sense. Took courage and began to exhort and ally himself with the men of his village. Then these men leagued themselves with others, and in turn they contacted their friends and relations. So their message passed from village to village and area to area. They asked their friends to advise them, and to bring assistance for those serious and urgent matters which affected them all. The people gathered together most eagerly in great troops, delighted that the day had come when they could help each other in the face of so urgent a necessity. 
And this is the start of the revolt, and we're going to cover events more or less chronologically from here, but first, Knighton mentioned something else important in this section. I'm going to quote. Okay. They directed the first of their wicked assaults. Oh, Knighton is not on their side, by the way. None of these chroniclers are on their side. Of course. The first of their wicked assaults on the Archbishop of Canterbury's town of Maidstone. In the Archbishop's prison, there was a certain chaplain, John Ball, held a most famous preacher to the laity. For many years he had sowed the word of God in a foolish manner, mixing tares, that's a type of weed I had to look it up, tares mm -hmm. with the wheat, and pleasing laymen beyond measure. He excessively attacked the position, law, and liberties of the church and shamefully introduced many errors into the relations of clerks and laymen within the Church of Christ. Sure, bud. What did he say? Oh, we're gonna get there. Oh, good. Okay, alright. He had darkened the province for many years in this way and was accordingly tried and lawfully convicted by the clergy who committed him yeah. to perpetual imprisonment in the said jail. But the people broke into the prison, brought him out, and made him go with them, for they proposed to promote him as archbishop. That's kind of dope, actually. That's crazy. John Ball is generally credited as the ideological leader of the revolt, at least by contemporary sources. That is, modern historians may take a different view, but I'm working from the primary sources, and that seems to be their impression. Okay. Now, to get an idea of what Ball's dangerous preaching was about... Yes, I need to know. I'm going to quote Walsingham, who's paraphrasing and probably trying to make John Ball look bad, but it's what we've got. Oh boy. All right, here we go. He began a sermon in this fashion. Quote, When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then a gentleman? End quote. Span is the past tense of spin for anyone who's confused by that. That little couplet is basically saying, all right, back in the beginning, Adam and Eve, mm -hmm. which one of them is an aristocrat and which is a peasant because either Ooh. either they're in one of those categories or or this is not actually something that's the natural state of mankind and was imposed later dangerous and continuing his sermon he tried to prove from the words of the proverb that he had taken for his text that from the beginning all men were created equal by nature and that servitude had been introduced by the unjust and evil oppression of men against the will of God, who, if it had pleased him to create serfs, surely in the beginning of the world would have appointed who should be a serf and who a lord. So that's the that's what gets him thrown in jail. I mean, I really can't argue with that. No, it is solid reasoning, but it is also yeah. deeply heterodox at this time. Yes. Wow. Okay. John Ball was also apparently the author of some rather strange letters that circulated during the revolt. Walsingham and Knighton both reproduced some of these letters, which Walsingham says are, quote, full of obscurities, unquote. They really are hard to understand because they seem to, okay. to be based on allusions and code words and everyone's using aliases. Ooh, I like this. This is exciting. The one I'm about to read claims to be written by, quote, John Sheep, unquote, but that's generally accepted as an alias of Ball because he introduces himself in the same way that he does in a different letter that's under his own name. Okay. Anyway, it's in Middle English, so I've modernized a bit, but I'm going to read it to you. John Sheep, sometime St. Mary Priest of York, and now of Colchester, greets well John Nameless and John the Miller and John Carter and bids them that they be wary of guile in burrows, and stand together in God's name, 
and bid Piers Plowman go to his work. Oh, we're gonna Good come reference. back to that. Good reference, okay. And chastise well Hob the Robber, and take with you John Trueman, and all his fellows, and no more, and take care that you shape yourselves to one head, and no more. The next bit is oh. in verse. Okay, alright. John the Miller has ground small, small, small. The king's son of heaven shall pay for all. Be wary, or ye be woe. Know your friend from your foe, have enough, and say ho, and do well and better, and flee sin, and seek peace, and hold you therein. And so biddeth John Trueman and all his fellows. So you followed all that, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I got some of it, but it's, it is pretty well encoded. Yeah, it's not clear what he's talking about. But he is <laughs> definitely referring to, as Zoe caught, Piers Plowman which is a literary work that was not that old at this point. This is a right. recent work that he's referring to. The author's still alive. It would be like us referring to, gosh, what's the Margaret Atwood's book? Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, except that was much more unusual back in the Middle Ages. Yes. When people made allusions, they were usually towards to older sources. It really yeah. speaks to how popular Langland was that references to his work were being used in his lifetime. Yeah, contemporarily. And, all right, so Piers Plowman exists in three separate manuscripts traditions. We call them the A text, the B text, and the C text. There's also a Z text, but we're not going to go into that right now. The A text is pretty short. The B text is a revision of the A text with like 20 other chapters added on to it. Mm -hmm. And the C text is a overhaul and revision of the B text. And there is a theory. I don't know whether this is currently like in vogue because I try not to spend too much time reading about Piers Plowman because it's a very, it's a religious It's allegory. a lot. It's, 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 it's not it's fun a to lot. read. I don't recommend it. We're not doing it. It's like C.S. Lewis on a ridiculous amount of drugs. Like it's, it's a, times a thousand. Like you thought that, you know, the Jesus lion was a lot? No. No, no, no. Not compared to Piers Plowman. Yeah, it's a lot, is yeah. probably the best way to say it. But there is a theory, or at least at one point there was, I don't know if it's still current, that the difference between the B text and the C text is that the revolt happens in between them, and Langland goes back and revises his work to distance himself from it because there were these references to Piers Plowman being made by the rebels. That's crazy. And that kind of pans out because one of the differences between the B text and the C text is that the C text is much more hostile to Lollards, who were like a heretic group from the 14th yep. century. And John Ball probably was not a Lollard, but he's often lumped in with them. So you can see Fair. how the connection could be made. Right. Damn. Okay. All right. This is, this is deep lore, you guys. <laughs> so the revolt is started. And yes. I'm about to tell you what sources we're looking at, and we're going to start really focusing in on, like, day-to-day -day Instances, events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do keep in mind, this is very much a, like... Like, not only is history written by the victors, but there's also that whole can the subaltern speak thing, where, like, not only do the peasants lose, they're peasants. Right. Like, their, their stuff is not going to get written down anyway, even if they'd won it would have been a process getting someone to actually record it. 
Everyone who's able to write this stuff down in any kind of official capacity is very much not on their side. Correct. Yep. It's a bad time for everyone involved. Yeah. So, from here on out, we've got seven different sources, each of which is itself compiled from disparate eyewitness accounts. Because almost none of these people were actually here. They talked to people who were there and wrote it down. Right. Which is how a lot of our history has been recorded, particularly in this period, but also generally speaking. Right. But because of this system, uh, and they weren't checking with each other, or not some of them may have been in contact, but not all of them, uh, they disagree on a lot of the details. For reference, and I I like to use this as a general example, if you've read All Quiet on the Western Front, there's also the Red Battle Flyer, which is Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron's account of the war. And both of these texts are depicting the same war from very, very different perspectives. So I like to use that as a reference. It's like, they're not necessarily like stories or narratives, but you see different narratives through each historical text, essentially. Yeah. Although what we've got here is more if we had like a bunch of people who knew the Red Baron, each separately talking to a different historian... And about, having for- <laughs> about him, having forgotten a lot of stuff in between. Because mm-hmm. these are also probably traumatic experiences for a lot of these folks, too. Like, they don't just disagree on the vibe. They often disagree on actual events. Right. But I'm, I'm going to try and synthesize them into, into a coherent narrative. But before we start with that, let's mention what these sources are. Uh, we've already mentioned Walsingham, Knighton, and the Anonymal Chronicle. We'll be coming back to them a lot, especially the Anonymal Chronicle. I love that title. I know. It, it's... Anonymal Chronicle. I, it's just it's just fun. I'm disappointed that Anonymal in this case means anonymous and not anomalous, because that's how I always want to read it. That's fun, too. Anonymous. Like, it just appeared out of nowhere one day, and they're like, what is this Anomalous Chronicle? Well, hey, put that in your D&D campaign. Done. <laughs> But anyway, those are three of our seven sources. All right. We also have, well, his name is his name is probably supposed to be pronounced Joffoissart, but it's spelled Jean Froissart. <laughs> <laughs> He's, I, love, I love your pronunciations of these names. Thank you. He is a French-speaking historian who happened to be kicking around at the time. He's in England, but he's not super familiar with England. Rather, I should say, he spent some time in England. He seems to have traveled a lot while working on his histories. But he was in England for a while. Dobson keeps pointing out that, like, Foissat will get his geography wrong all the time. Oh, gosh. Because he's he's not from England. He doesn't know anything about it. Yeah. All right. Also, Ranulf Higdon's Polychronicon is a gigantic work that purports to be a history of the world, Higdon was dead by this point, but one of his various continuators, an unnamed monk at Westminster, added an account of the revolt to his copy. So we That's kind of cool. Yeah. Props to that guy. The Eulogium Historiarum is another world history, also had an account of the revolt added to it, same way as the Polychronicon. Okay, yep. And the London Letter Books are a set of city records that were maintained from the late 13th century to the early 16th century. They're called the Letter Books because they're labeled with letters. Book H has an account of the revolt in it. Makes sense. All right. So those are our seven sources. 
Walsingham, Knighton, Anonymal Chronicle, Froissart, Polychronicon, Eulogium Historiarum, Letterbook. Okay. The Anonymal Chronicle gives the most detailed account, so I'm going to be leaning on it the most heavily. But once we get into London, I'll start pointing out some of the places where other sources say something different. I'm also going to paraphrase and summarize a lot of it for reasons of time, but I'll go into direct quotations also. Okay, sounds good. So, in Essex on June 1st, those commissioners we mentioned earlier are trying to collect that tax. The ones who bought the debt. Yes. The people refuse, and a royal steward, one Thomas slash John de Bampton, the Chronicle calls him Thomas, but Dobson notes that other records generally agree his name's actually John, and the Chronicle's just gotten his name wrong. That's really funny. It's, it happens with more than one person in this. This makes a lot of sense, because what if, and this, this is just like a what if, what if, for instance, all of a sudden, the government decided, oh yeah, you know our, like, one million of our trillions of dollars of debt, like, we're selling that off, and it's it's now going to, like, Jeff Bezos or whatever. And now Jeff Bezos' cronies show up at your door saying, hey, you have to pay this tax. It was to the government, but now I own it. Like, you would say no, too. I don't know. Debt collectors seem to be pretty successful. I mean, yeah, they're collecting on, like, healthcare debts instead of, like, taxes, but... Because they're really good at bullying people into paying up. Well, right. But but now all of a sudden that money isn't even going towards the government. It's not going yeah. towards your welfare or anything like that. It's just going to some guy. That's true. Like, that's gross to me. That just feels wrong. I mean, to be fair, again, with all debt collectors, it's just going towards some guy. By the time collectors right. show up, your debt has been sold. And right. if you pay it off, it's not going to the people you it was supposed to go to. True. But yeah, like, they are completely justified in refusing to pay, I would say. Gross. The people refuse, and our confusingly named de Bampton orders them arrested. Seeing the violence inherent in the system, they react accordingly. And I quote, Then the people of these three townships gathered to the number of a hundred or more, and with one assent went to the said Thomas de Bampton, and told him outright that they would not deal with him, nor give him any money. On which the said Thomas commanded the sergeants-at-arms to arrest these people and put them in prison. But these commons rose against the royal officers, would not be arrested, and were ready to kill the said Thomas and the two sergeants. Accordingly, Thomas fled towards London and the king's council, while the commons went into the woods for fear of his malice. Like, there's a confrontation, and then... Everyone is like, everyone flees, like, as just soon as possible. Runs. Because Thomas yeah. is like, oh, shit, they're going to kill me. And the peasants just, oh, shit, we just ran that guy out of town. We're probably going to be in trouble. Well, the, gar the, the royal guard is going to follow up. The soldiers are going to follow up. Yeah. So they hid there in the woods for some time. And until they were almost famished. And afterwards went from town to town, inciting other people to rise against the great lords and the good men of the country. So, like, they spend some time hiding in the woods, and then, like, wait, they're not coming for us. That kind of worked. Like, not only did we make the right call, but that, but it worked. We should get some other people on board. Oh. They're like, hey, we might have a movement here. Yeah. All right, okay. But you may remember, DeBampton went to London and spoke to the council. So after his report of what happened, the Crown sends Sir Robert Belknap Chief Justice of the Common Bench, on a commission of Trailbaston, which I had to look up. That's a hell of a name in the first place. Trailbaston 
is a special legal thing that's really only done in the 14th century. Like it, it didn't, okay. it was not a long-standing thing. But it basically means sending out a specialized court to prosecute people who have committed serious felonies against the crown. All right. So they send this this high-ranking judge out to do that. The peasants are having none of it. They rise up and engage in some serious violence this time. They threaten Belknap into giving out the names of the jurors. Oh, shit. And th- this is not like a jury of your peers no. either. Like, Do you want to explain what this officials. is? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I'm just inferring. Right. No, in this period of time, being a juror isn't like you don't get jury duty. It's like being a professional snitch. Like you. you inform to the court and you get paid for it. And that's being a juror. Yeah, I understand why they want those names. Yeah. But they get the names and then they start killing those jurors. Holy shit. Belknap panics and flees, and things continue to escalate. No kidding. And I quote, 50,000 of the commons gathered, going to the various manors and townships of those who would not rise with them. This is a recurring theme in all of these chronicles, is they keep saying, like, obviously people were forced into joining this movement, but, like, why would they need to be forced? Right. Well, and there probably was some coercion. Just because mobs are really scary and dangerous. Yeah. But there were a lot of people who wanted in. Yeah. Like, and I'm not going to doubt that people who's who didn't want to join the revolt and people whose manners got burned, there's probably some overlap there because mm-hmm. if, if they don't want in, that's probably because it's not according to their interests. Mm-hmm. Like they own a manor. But uh, going to the various manors and townships of those who would not rise with them, throwing their buildings to the ground and setting them ablaze. At this time, they captured three of Thomas de Bampton's clerks, cut off their heads, and carried them about with them on poles for days as an example to others. They proposed to kill all the lawyers, jurors, and royal servants they could find. Ooh. Meanwhile, all the great lords and other notable people of that country fled towards London or to other counties where they might be safe. Yeah, you'd have to. Yeah. And this this kill all the lawyers thing is a another through line. I think what's going on here is they've recognized correctly, actually, that in an unequal society, the law is a weapon that the wealthy use against the poor. The law is not yeah. on their side. And sense. they've decided to... Do away with the law. Yeah. I mean, not all of it, but like the legal system as it stands, they're they're done with it. They want it cut down and they view anyone who's part of it as against them inherently. Right. This culminates in the burning of the manor belonging to Sir Robert Hales, the royal treasurer, and the sending of various missives to Kent, Suffolk, and Norfolk, encouraging the people there to join them. On June 3rd, in Kent, Sir Simon de Burley, a knight of the king's household, comes to a town called Gravesend. <laughs> that seems appropriate. It's probably pronounced differently. I may be over-enunciating because it is, is an English town name, so it might be just called or something. Yeah, well, let's roll with it, at least for dramatic flair. Yeah. Or rather, probably Sir Simon's representatives come to town. Dobson right. notes that other records place de Burley himself out of the country on court business at this time. So it's probably just people who work for him. Anyway, the reason they're there is to accuse one of the men of the town of being an escaped serf belonging to de Burley's manor. 
If the man wants to keep his freedom, they're demanding a settlement of 300 pounds. You may notice that previous monetary amounts were in pence, so this really is an obscene amount. I was going to say, like, this guy probably decided to go and get better wages from, like, 5 pence to 12 pence. Yeah. And you think this guy has 300 fucking pounds? It's even more no. than you think, because English currency wasn't decimalized until 1971. Oh, this is fun. Before then, a pound isn't 100 pence, it's 240 pence. This guy does not have that money. What do you no, think you're going to get? You're just, you're just going to throw him in jail. Yeah. Ugh, okay. The Chronicle acknowledges this and calls it, quote, a sum which would have ruined the said man, which, yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Eventually, he's arrested and taken to Rochester Castle to be imprisoned. The people of Kent start rising in a similar manner to the people of Essex. Details aren't given, but another commission of Trail Baston is sent out, which includes John Legg, the guy who was mistreating peasant women earlier. Or girls, more to the point. Oof. And, like, I want to note here that the thing that inspired this the section of the revolt is technically justice doing its job. Like, that was the law doing its job. This guy ran away, he's not supposed to, blah blah blah. But the injustice of it all, including how much money this guy would, would then owe, is so insane that people are like, no, we're not, we're not gonna let this stand. Yeah, I would argue, in fact, that it's the law doing its job, but that not justice, justice is entirely not. separate. You are correct. <laughs> but yeah, we like we just read earlier about these laws being passed about people running away from their employers. Right. So yeah, these are people following and enforcing the law, but mm -hmm. I don't know, ACAB. Anyway, that commission is, quote, turned back by the commons, unquote, who then begin planning revolution in earnest. I'll bet. I'll, I'll quote as, as follows. As they want to do. Yeah. They came to Dartford and took counsel together. They ordained that no one who lived at any place within twelve leagues of the sea should come with them, but should keep the sea coasts free from enemies. They're at war. They don't want to undermine England's military standing. They're still patriots. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. That makes a lot of sense. They said among themselves that there were more kings than one, and that they would neither suffer nor have any king except King Richard. The rest of the king's council are the other kings. They're like, that's not okay. We want just King Richard. We don't want these other assholes. Because they're saying the problem is not with the crown. It's that these guys are like taking over the law, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. They have not reached the whole like, you get to be king by exploiting the workers and hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma. Right. They're, which... not, they're not there yet. Right. Which makes sense. Like, you can't really blame them for that. I mean, what you've got to understand is not only do we have the divine right thing going on, but there's not going to be a lot of contact between a peasant and a king. No. Like, if you're yeah. a peasant, you're told, okay, God has ordained that society works the way it does. And you're like, fine. Okay, sure. And you might question, like, okay, my lord is actually an asshole. I've mm -hmm. met him, or I've met people who work directly for him, and I think he's an mm -hmm. asshole, and I don't think he deserves to be in charge. Mm -hmm. Like, you can get there, but you yes. never meet the king. The king is basically a legendary figure. Yep. So, a theme you see in a lot of peasant revolts, actually, is, like, they'll be saying, if the king knew what the lords were doing to us, he would stop them. Oh, that breaks my heart. I know. 
That's so, so sad. Wow. All right. Okay. Yeah, so through this whole time, they're like, obviously King Richard's on our side. He's the king. He just doesn't know. The problem is his advisors are misleading him and lying to him. Oh, okay. By the way, reminder, yeah. King Richard is 14. Yeah, I was going to say, like, this kid is itty bitty. Yeah, he's been king for a while. He is technically of his age of majority. I don't remember whether, whether there was an official regency, which probably would have been John of Gaunt. But at this point, he's just got an advisory council. He is king in his own right. 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 Gosh. Okay. Anyway. The Kentish Commons then go to Maidstone, where they do the same burning property routine and meet up with a bunch of the Essex rebels. At this point, they have an army. And what do you do with an army? You march. I quote, Because of the case of the man from Gravesend, they lay siege to Rochester Castle to free their companion from Gravesend whom Sir Simon had imprisoned. They laid strong siege to the castle. And although the constable defended it vigorously for half a day, he at last handed the castle over for fear of the great multitude of people who had come without reason from Essex and Kent. Without reason, my ass. All of the people writing this seem to not understand, like, why the peasants would ever do this. Other question. How do these presumably untrained peasants know how to, like, stage a siege? I'm not sure they have military training, or if they do, it's going to be pretty basic. Mm -hmm. So I think there are, like, I think you are probably supposed to, like, English practice with a longbow. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, they probably don't know how to stage a siege. In fact, in other peasant revolts, you occasionally see something happening, like, they'll Shanghai a knight or something and go, like, you understand military tactics. We need you to help us to help us yeah do this okay hmm. just curious because like it's just mentioned offhand they're like oh yeah and they staged a siege i'm like uh any more details there friend i think no? it's just force of numbers here wow that, that makes it even more impressive to me yeah Damn. all right okay the commons entered the castle and delivered their companion and all the other prisoners from it the men of Gravesend returned home with their companion in great joy and without doing anything more, but the people from Maidstone took their way with the rest of the commons through the surrounding countryside, and they made their chief one Watt Tyler of Maidstone to maintain and advise them. Now that might be a familiar name to our listeners. So let's stop a moment and cover what we know about Watt Tyler. He was born at some point before this, probably in England. The sources agree on nothing, including where he came from. Oh, fun. The Anonymal Chronicle just said he was Kentish, but the Eulogium Historiarum describes him as, quote, a Tyler from Essex who was extremely eloquent, end quote. And I'm a Zoe from Alaska. <laughs> well, what, a, what a way to be addressed. Well, it's because in the Eulogium Historiarum, it's Tyler, T-I-L-E-R. They're making the assumption that it's, he's named after his job. Which he might uh, be, but we don't know for sure. That makes sense. So he's, he's just a guy. Yeah. Watt is probably short for Walter, but might not be. And Frossa confuses the issue by calling him Water. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, as mentioned, Tyler is probably his occupation, but it could just be a name. In short, it really seems like he's just some guy. Wow. And for context here, we're at that period where... Like, occupations are turning into surnames, but not always. And so it's this weird mix of like, oh, your name is John Baker? Like, okay, you know, why do you work at an inn? It's like, yeah. oh, because that's my, that's my name. 
but you're not a baker. No, but my dad was, so that's just how I was called. Like, that's where we're at with these whole surnames. That's why we're not sure. Yeah. But yeah, it really seems like he's he's just some guy who received no official attention in any way that's been recorded until he stepped into the historical wow. record for about a week in 1381. Damn, dude. Way to stick your name down. Right? Also, it's wild. This is something that always sticks in my head whenever I'm reading about either this history or like 19th century American history. It's wild that Watt Tyler and Nat Turner are such similar names and they're like such similar roles. Like they both are like revolutionary leaders. Crazy. Crazy. I feel like Nat Turner probably would have done better than Watt Tyler in this though because he probably wouldn't have thought the king was on his side. Yeah, I feel like there's there's a little bit of learning to do, a little bit of growth to be had. Yeah. But anyway, on June 10th, the rebels arrive in Canterbury, where they tell the monks that they intend to execute the archbishop as a traitor. Uh, ill-advised, but sure. I mean, telling them, yes, ill-advised, but Yeah. The archbishop is also one of the leading members of the king's council, so he's part of these evil people who are lying to the kings. That's they don't just right. want to kill the archbishop for shiggles. Oh, no, no, no. Of course. No, that's fine. It's the telling them that's stupid. Yes. They are also recruiting. While they're there, they extract Uh, oaths of loyalty to, and I quote, King Richard and the True Commons. That's their, like, watchword this whole time. Wow. From the mayor and other leaders of the town, then start heading towards London, continuing to extract these oaths and destroy property on the way. Ooh. It's specifically noted that they destroyed the manners of one Thomas de Heseldine because he works for John of Gaunt, and they really hate that guy. Yes, makes sense. Fuck you in particular. Yeah, yeah, he's he is the top of their hit list. Yeah, for sure. Hey, y'all. I'm cutting this part of the episode here. I'm aware that it's not, like, a narratively satisfying place to pause, but... We're roughly halfway through, and we're about to start talking about the meeting at Blackheath. So, if I don't cut things off now, I won't be able to cut things off for a little while yet. And I want to keep the episodes roughly the same length. This is only going to be a two-parter, which was surprising to me. I was expecting it to be long enough for at least three parts, but we went on fewer digressions and tangents than usual. Not sure why. It might just be that having a script keeps me focused. But tune back in in two weeks for the other half of our special Peasants' Revolt episode. And take a moment on May 1st to commemorate May Day in whatever way you choose to do that. That does not have to involve starting a revolt, breaking a revolutionary preacher out of prison, and marching on London. You can just kick some money towards a strike fund or a bail fund or something. Whatever seems best to you. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. 
Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. I will pay you a... What's the word? A... I don't know the word. When you're not getting stuff in bits, when it's just a... I will pay you a lump sum. A lump sum? sum? Yeah. Got it.